I described, you know, a recent conversation that I had with somebody and we were sort of talking about the job market and it was quite a throwaway comment about how, you know, as a person of colour right now in this climate, I'll be fine finding another job. Um, and I I felt like someone had sucker punched me, like literally punched me in the stomach because I said, at what, you know, when did the colour of my skin become like a trendy thing? Welcome to Priorities the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach, Lily Silverton. And each week I'll be asking a new interviewee to open up about the things that are important and unimportant to them. What takes first place in their life, what they couldn't care less about, and what they'd like to work on a little bit more. Will you agree with their priorities? Will they make you reevaluate your own? Let's find out. My guest today is journalist and editor Deepal Acharya. Deepal is the arts and entertainment director of ES Magazine, where she is responsible for the cultural content and commissioning the cover each week for London's most widely read publication. Deepal also founded Somewhere for the Weekend, a curated collection of hotel recommendations. And during lockdown, she and a friend set up Doorstep Flowers, a local grassroots initiative that does pretty much what it says in the tin, delivers affordable fresh flowers to your doorstep. Never one to rest on her laurels then. Welcome, Deepal. Hi, Lil. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, it's so exciting to have you here. <laughs> right. First question is, where are you at on a scale of one to 10 in terms of your well-being? And I am, I'll give some context to this, which, which is that we are doing this recording on one of the hottest possible days of the year. It's about 35 degrees outside, so... Maybe the answer is just really hot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I say on a day last week, perhaps we would have been straddling like a six or a seven, but we're on a three today because I'm literally melting. Um, but I think that's so British, isn't it? Like as soon as you get a really hot day, it's so terrible. And then it becomes really rainy and it's so terrible. We can't really decide, but um, yeah, melting seems to be where I'm at right now. <laughs> Well, melting is its kind of a good segue into your first priority, which to me you've said is health. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Health is a strange one because it's not something that we really pay attention to, particularly in our 20s and early 30s. Um, you know, I feel like it's much more of a hedonistic phase of our life. Um, and you eat what you want and you do what you want and you don't really listen to your body and what it needs. But a couple of years ago, um, I think I must have experienced some form of burnout and, you know, had to really tune into what my mind was saying and what my body was saying and getting it to a a space where I was slightly more balanced. I think I was always running on a really sort of manic level and life could be incredibly frenetic so just slowing things down a little bit and listening to what I needed or perhaps why I wasn't treating my body as well as I should have been um and I think it was also that time in my life where we were perhaps thinking about our future and children and making a family and even though we weren't actively pursuing it at that time you know I that was never really a consideration you don't check in on 
where your fertility is at or, you know, how your mind would process such a big change. Um, so it's been happening gradually over the past three years. I think having a child also brings that quite strongly into focus because as a caregiver, I suppose your health isn't as big a priority as the person you're taking care of. But actually, um, you know, there, there's an acupuncturist um, that I go to see Ross Barr. Um, and he said, you, for you to be able to properly take care of the child, you have to take care of the mother. And I felt like that had never been more true when I had my daughter. And I suppose what sort of brought it back round again to my consciousness and made it my absolute top priority, as I'm sure lots of people have felt over the past few months and everything that's happened in the world, it really sort of floored me um, how much, well, how COVID had negatively impacted um, people from BAME communities and my husband got very, very sick in March and it was a real sort of wake-up call to how fragile our bodies were, even if we did all of the good things um, and we shouldn't really take it for granted. Um, so yeah, that was the, the more recent wake-up call, but I feel like health, it was just something that I parked for such a long time and I don't think I can park it anymore because it helps me be productive. It helps me engage with the world around me and it helps me be a sort of better mum and partner. Um, yeah, that was a really waffly long answer. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't at all. <laughs> I think health can mean so many different things to so many different people. So what does it mean to you? I think it's sort of being fit in, in body and mind. The two aren't disconnected. I think perhaps it's a very, well, it used to be a very Western way of thinking of things. You know, the two are completely separate and you can hone and refine your sort of physical well, wellness in the gym. But there was still such a huge stigma about engaging with those kind of exercises or um, programs to help your mind but for me they're completely connected and it's really interesting because I've noticed when I'm in very stressful or difficult situations um, my anxiety or stress manifests itself physically um, so you know dizziness uh, feeling incredibly lethargic and so I can't separate the two and there was actually an occasion after I'd had Mila, my daughter, that I just went through the most absurd dizzy spells where I couldn't leave the house, you know, sort of seeing black spots, felt incredibly scared to have her alone with me in the buggy as I was crossing the street or going to meet people for coffee. And it was only later through reading and talking to people that I realised this was actually a form of postnatal anxiety that was manifesting itself, but I wasn't listening to it because I was trying to be as proactive as possible after giving birth and, you know, I had a C-section, so I wanted to get out and about and recovered really, really quickly, but I wasn't listening to what was happening in my mind. Um, and I think as any new parent can sympathize with, it's a really difficult, frightening moment in your life. And you really have to acknowledge it. I think you can be, I think it's great to have a positive approach to things, but also like, Tuning in to the negative thoughts and acknowledging that they're there is really important. So health for me means both things. It's the physical and the mental and understanding that they're connected. Mm. 
yeah, I think you're completely right. They can't be separated. No. And like, there is so much research out there to show you that your mental well-being can sort of surface in the most curious ways. But I, I can only go from my own experience and I've realised that as soon as I connect the two, I can live a sort of happier, healthier life. Mm. I think with anxiety in particular as well manifests in some physical ways, as you said, that people just don't think about at all, that they wouldn't connect with the mental, that they would immediately, again, partly because of how we've been brought up in the Western world, but to assume that it was something physical and to always look for the physical solution. Yeah. I mean, in your experience with what you do, because you have so much experience, what are like the more curious ways that you've seen anxiety manifest itself? beyond the sort of the headaches and the dizziness? Uh, I think lethargy is a big one. Mm. I think also people can just behave quite strangely, so they can become very disassociated from themselves and even experience the world as if they aren't living in it properly. Yeah. So that they are not sure whether they're asleep or awake at an extreme end of it. Oh, my goodness. So that's that's probably the most extreme symptom that I can think of yeah I'm sure many listeners would have other experiences or ideas around it yeah I think it's really powerful to talk about as well Dee thank you no not at all you come from uh, an Indian family yes your household and in your husband's household do you talk about Ayurveda at all because that's obviously science of body and mind and has always integrated both Yeah, I mean, again, it was something that I was brought up around. So my family are actually East African Indians, um, but they're incredibly religious. The Acharyas, you know, have historically been priests in temples and have always acknowledged um, the power of Ayurvedic medicine. Um, But I just thought it was always a bit crazy, you know, all the yellow pastes and beads and like funky smelling potions that the aunties would make in the kitchen to feed you be like like does this really work and then you see the rise of turmeric lattes and yoga becomes like one of the most popular ways for women to get toned and fit and you know mindfulness and meditation all have roots in ayurveda so it's not something that i have necessarily engaged with personally but i do find it amusing that having poo-pooed it for the majority of my life it's now you know a lucrative industry for for many people out there um I sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable with it if I'm being honest because maybe I'm not okay with it and so something kind of gets my back up when I live we, we live in West London so you know you go down to Notting Hill and there are people that have taken on these aspects of the Indian culture, I suppose, um, so fervently. And they probably know far, far more than I do, even though I've been born into that culture. Um, So yeah, perhaps it's a bit embarrassing that I don't know more. (laughs) I think, well, I don't know. I don't know how you feel, so I'm never going to pretend to. But there's also that element of maybe a bit of appropriation. 
the problem is that if you aren't going to embrace it yourself, I don't think we you can criticize people that do want to dedicate themselves to that kind of practice. It's no easy feat to go through yoga teacher training, for example. Um, so if somebody practices yoga at a really high level and it's beneficial to other people, I am in no way entitled to criticize because I've never dedicated the time and energy to training and educating myself. Um, I don't feel territorial over my culture and heritage in, in that way. So long as it's done respectfully, I think there's a really fine line between that and people perhaps being silly with wearing things or or doing things without truly understanding the meaning behind them. Um, Mm. I actually really understand that from the perspective of I'm Jewish, which, you know, I'm half Jewish. Um, And I remember when Kabbalah was really big and my knowledge of Kabbalah is not that strong. I'm increasing it at the moment, actually, and, and finding it really interesting. My older brother understands it a lot and it's deeply mystical. And I remember when it was becoming very trendy, for want of a better word, and it's a lot less so than yoga and Ayurveda and it was out there and having that sense of why don't I know more about that? Why am I not more involved in that? And I guess it's the ego yeah. getting involved and feeling like you have ownership over something. Yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think perhaps it also speaks to us on like quite a primal level where even if you don't actively participate in a culture, if you're born into it, you've been surrounded by it and you've absorbed it for such a long time it can make you angry and it can make you frustrated without you realizing why. Um, But then, you know, the shoes, if you flip it around, um, I'm sure I've done something where I have tried to approach a cultural practice or, um, you know, a ritual that, that someone else from another culture might not appreciate. So I think it's about, yeah, educating yourself and understanding why you're doing something as you're doing it it shouldn't exclude you from it, from, from, yeah, from pursuing an interest or a passion. Mm. And having respect for it. Yeah, absolutely. Brings us quite well onto your second priority, Mm. which is diversity. Yes. It's a, it's a big one for me. And it's so, it's always been a big one for me, but particularly again, since this is going to start sounding like a mum podcast, like everything is framed around my child. But <laughs> it really is like a seismic shift in your life. And I was lucky enough to be brought up in North London, in a very, very diverse area of North London. My school was incredibly diverse culturally. Um, and the first time I realised that that wasn't the way the world operates, or it's definitely not the normals when I went to university, which was incredibly white and upper middle class. And, you know, I think I was maybe one of a handful of people of colour there and suddenly realised that, I don't know, I felt quite othered. Um, And so what you do when you go to a good North London day school is you kind of assimilate everything around you and go along with... I don't know, go go along with the easiest way to sort of exist, which sounds quite cowardly, but I suppose when you're, university is a really weird time because you're testing out different aspects of your personality and trying to better understand who you are, but you're also incredibly young and vulnerable and cut off from those sort of home comforts. Um, and so I did it. I like assimilated the culture of Durham for, for three years, but I didn't particularly enjoy it. And I definitely felt like, 
I was in a minority in many senses. Um, and so when I came to London, I kind of vowed that I'm not going to apologize for who I am. And I'm, I just want to be as authentic as I possibly can be. Um, it's easy to do when you live in such an amazing metropolitan place. Um, but there are sort of sections of society and industries which still have like a chronic diversity problem. Um, and I always thought, I was always kind of brought up with, them, with that mentality. And actually, it's a very immigrant mentality. My parents were kicked out of East Africa in the 1970s. So, you know, they brought my sister and I up with this idea of like, keep your head down, work hard, and it will pay off eventually. And I really did believe that until I first got into journalism and sort of 13 work placements along the line. Um, and, you know, countless applications where just kind of breaking down that door. Um, I realized actually that that's not the case. Um, and there is a systemic problem in the industry in which I work in. Um, so it had always been a concern. And I, I, I really, I think perhaps I was incredibly naive until I had Mila thinking that I could, I could enact the change. I could be the change, you know, um, but when you realize it is a systemic problem, it takes a lot more than that. And it, it, it's incredibly exhausting to have to be, you know, the sort of self-appointed diversity officer. I hate, I hate it when people used to joke in the workplace and say, you know, what do you think is a diversity officer? I've never nominated myself to take on that role. It's literally the fact that there are so few of us working within our industry. Um, but when you have a child, they're so they're so beautiful and innocent and uncorrupted. And the main thing I want for her and any children that my partner and I have is that they feel like they're seen and they have, you know, they can have the same route into whatever path they want to pursue um, without sort of being censored or stigmatized or held back by the color of their skin because that's essentially what it comes comes down to right I could have exactly the same upbringing as so many of my best friends um you know I have a friend from school where I've, we've literally had parallel careers same same type of universities same journalism schools same same places that we've worked for publications but there will always be something in the back of my mind which says I've had to work that much harder to get to where I am to have the security that I have um, and I don't want that for me. You know, I, I just want her to, you know, be given the same opportunities. So, yeah, diversity weighs very heavily on my heart. And particularly with everything that's happening in the world with BLM, you know, it's it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking that it still happens. Um, and I don't really know what to do anymore. I think that's the other thing. I'm kind of at a point of exhaustion but also slightly paralyzed because it's very interesting being Indian it's not as though you come from a black community that has been historically and so visibly and violently marginalized but equally you're not white so you can't associate yourself with those privileges and you know, the, the lack of education or experience that perhaps white communities have because you felt felt it from both sides. Um, so yeah, it's confusing. It's confusing more than anything else. What I'm trying to articulate in quite a clumsy way is that with what's happening in the world 
right now and the society in which we live in, I'm finding it difficult other than, you know, the very common public ways that we've been taught or have been educating ourselves um, to pursue, like I'm finding it hard to actually make change. And that's definitely my personality. You know, I, I don't like talking and hypothesizing about the problem. I'm someone that's definitely energized much more when I have a route to actually do something about it enough like enough talking about it like let's actually do something so in the tiny ways that the lack of diversity touches my life I have tried in the past few months you know I set up a small floristry company with a friend during lockdown and used it as a platform to engage with other florists in London about the lack of diversity in the industry and hosted a diversity panel you know, speaking to them and talking about what they're actually going to do. It's resulted in mentorship schemes, you know, free workshops for people that come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds with a BAME focus, um, scholarships. So much came out of that one 45-minute talk, and I feel really proud to have been part of that. Um, in terms of my journalism, you know, one of the first things I did when I got back into the office post-lockdown was talk to people about travel writing you know it's another section of the industry that I feel really passionate about I love travel I've edited the travel pages at the magazine at which I work for five years but if I look around at the industry I realize that a lot of the people ironically that are writing about travel come from the same background and why is that how can we improve access do we need to create a mentorship scheme um, to help people see a way in shape their writing, shape their voice. So that's the way that I can actually help rather than just talking about the problem. Um, but I think there are so many other things that I can still do. I love that you said at the beginning, your clumsy way of saying it, you're the furthest thing from clumsy. You speak so eloquently. Of course you do. You're a brilliant journalist. I babble a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. I, I think the floristry, uh, Doorstep Flowers, your company, um, I think that's a really interesting point because I obviously am, am a journalist and have known about the lack of diversity in journalism for some time. And it's something that we've spoken about the magazines that I work for and tried to change, but I never would have thought about it in terms of floristry because it's not mm. an industry that I know at all. Mm. And it's what you were saying about it being so systemic because pretty much any industry you can think of. It just touches so many industries. It's, it's crazy. So. But but why I honestly do not understand why in this day and age that's still the case. And I I know I keep rolling my eyes every time I say I need to educate myself because it sounds like an Instagram slogan that everyone sort of adopted. But it really is very, very shocking. And I think the other thing that, you know, you and I were talking about and kind of confused me, but also opened my eyes was this sort of the recent scandal about Wiley and his anti-Semitic comments on Twitter. So, you know, it, it's an incredibly pernicious form of racism with what he said. And I found it very interesting in the way that the two instances were, were dealt with very differently because it was quite obviously racist, what he was saying on Twitter. And the amount of time it took to take it down was one thing. And I remember reposting something on my own 
social media feed about how anti-Semitism absolutely is racism, that, you know, there's no question about it. And the thing that I found really eye-opening was the number of people that DM'd me back privately, Jewish friends or people that were Jewish followers saying, thank you. And I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't understand that because I went to an incredibly multicultural school. Like I said, I grew up in a very multicultural part of London. But I think when we discussed it, it was that a lot of people felt like they didn't have that voice or people weren't listening to them or people weren't speaking up for them. And I like, that's a horrible place to be. If any of my closest friends feel like that, like I, I, I want to make them feel, you know, seen and heard in the same way I want my child to feel seen and heard. Mm. I think around that, there was also a big feeling in the Jewish community of gaslighting almost, because there was a lot of, there were a lot of, aside from what Wiley said, who it does seem is, is quite unwell himself and himself mentally, <laughs> aside from his comments, which were clearly unpleasant and anti-Semitic. It was the comments on his on what he'd said and the support that was out there for what he'd said. That that's what was very upsetting. And then it was things like the newspapers were saying that Wiley had been accused of anti-Semitism, and it, he hadn't been accused. He was anti-Semitic. Yeah. Or people were bringing up Israel, which is a very separate topic from anti-Semitism. But it yeah. felt like for the Jewish community, for a large portion of the Jewish community, that anti-Semitism and you couldn't say anything about anti-Semitism without someone saying, yeah, but what about Israel? Yeah. And that felt certainly to me, and I know most of the people that I know, we've talked about it a lot, my friends and community, that it felt a bit like gaslighting because people were telling you that your feelings, first of all, weren't valid, but also Mm. were related to the politics of a government that you don't necessarily agree with or have anything to do with. Even Yeah. It's an incredibly frightening place to be. And I, you know, I don't know how, how it was for you growing up, you know, being aware of all of that around you. Was there a point at which you had that kind of eye-opening moment as I did when I went to university? Or was it something that you'd always been aware of? I went to a Jewish school from the age of 11 to 16. Yeah. And before that, I went to the local Christian. My father's Catholic, he's atheist, but we didn't grow up in a religious household whatsoever, but we did grow up with quite a lot of tradition and went to a Jewish school where we, it was actually in Camden, it's now moved. It was a big school and it had security at all times that we were there and huge gates, the complete, completely gated. You couldn't access it without going through the security guards. We were never allowed to put our bags down by the side of the fence because of bomb threats so we got daily bomb threats and we had this material on the windows which made them shatterproof um which is actually like sticky back plastic that they put on the windows that prevented them from shattering in the event of an attack on the school and that was one of the things that you get expelled for if you were ever seen messing with it peeling at it you know you'd sit in a class and want to attempting to peel (laughs) but um so I was very aware of it um from that age but I think probably when I went to uh, sixth form at a different school where there were lots of Jewish people and actually some of my friends from the school went as well but I became aware of how ignorant a lot of people were about Jews Mm. and the thoughts and assumptions and beliefs that some of my new friends had about Jewish people they weren't necessarily anti-semitic but they were just so weird 
and placing misplaced that that was quite a shock yeah I think shock is the perfect word right because whenever we're confronted with prejudice even today um that's definitely what I feel I, I described you know a recent conversation that I had with somebody and we were sort of talking about the job market and it was quite a throwaway comment about how, you know, as a person of colour right now in this climate, I'll be fine finding another job. Um, and I I felt like someone had sucker punched me, like literally punched me in the stomach because I said, at what, you know, when did the colour of my skin become like a trendy thing, you know? or a thing that's ever worked in my favor, because literally look around us. Why aren't there more people of color then if it's that easy? Um, but you're so shocked by the, the, the feeling and the sentiment behind it. You're kind of rendered speechless and you know, I can talk and talk and talk. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just, it's such a brutal, evil thing. But the fact that it happens every day, it's just like mind blowing. It's mind-blowing. Perhaps we're incredibly naive. And yeah, what do you respond to that? How did you respond to that? I couldn't. I couldn't. No. I felt so ashamed of myself. And you know, it's one of those things where you go home and you're sitting on the bus or sitting at home like, oh, I should have said that or come back with like a witty repartee. Like in that moment, you're just so wounded that you can't respond. And it's so like the opposite of my character. I was really angry with myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, everyday racism. I was been thinking as well because I've started to go out again. I mean, not out, out, but you know, I've been to the shops and I went, you know, the local bookshop or um, went to go and teach a class and so on. And I have noticed as well, which obviously you've seen on social platforms as well as with brands a lot, but that since BLM, every single book at the forefront or every single event at the forefront has a person of color Mm. and I think that's really interesting because it's a lot of companies that have gone we must do this immediately and put it all there tokenistic approach rather than that's the question is it tokenistic and I'd love to get your your thoughts on that I can't decide what I think obviously it's great to be showcasing people because also I mean definitely in terms of books some of the best books of the past few years have been by BAME community hands down But particularly in light of what's happened for the past few months, I think it's definitely like um, something you take brand by brand. So, you know, my favorite example was Yorkshire Tea and their response to very racist um, consumers. And I'm just saying, just don't buy our tea. Don't ever buy our tea again, which I thought was brilliant because it's, almost like the last brand that you'd associate with this sort of racially driven civil rights movement that we're going with. So what did they say? It was because some people were tweeting, we're really glad that um, Yorkshire Tea haven't put up a black square or haven't. Exactly. exactly. It. it was exactly something. And they said, we're, we're taking our time, but in the meantime, please never buy our tea again. Please don't buy our tea. Um, and I think you can really also show action with how you're buying things, right? Mm. Um I do, I do worry. I mean, the exception is obviously myself, but I think positive discrimination actually is a really good thing until we have complete parity in certain industries. Um, It's the only way to go. But on a personal level, and like how hypocritical of me, 
if I was brought into a conversation, a public conversation or in a public forum or given a platform because they needed a person of colour to tick a box, you know, I'd find that quite galling. Yeah, I've had um, quite a few friends who have had that happen to them. Where they were brought on, and it was made very clear like that they, needed, they yeah. needed a black person to be on that team because they didn't have one. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. But I suppose visibility, visibility of people like yourself, if that encourages you to pursue a path um, or career, that can only be a good thing, right? So it, like, we have to do, as somebody that comes from a BAME community, we have to do a certain level of the work. It can't entirely be on the non-BAME community, but there is a line and you can't, you can't push people too much because it is really tiring and it's really not the job that we've nominated to do ourselves. So, um, yeah, finding a balance and being sensitive, but I, I think it's really hard to say, look, this brand's being tokenistic and this mm. brand, you know, done, done the thinking. I think it's much more about the outcome mm. and how it's changing our behaviors. Um, yeah. and seeing what happens a few, di- few years down the line, it's similar with the climate stuff, right? Because yeah. when that, when that, comes to the forefront of the news a lot of people are in there and talking about it and a lot of brands are talking about it but then it's seeing what they're actually doing a few years down the line when it hasn't gone away because those are the two biggest issues of our time as far as I'm concerned yeah definitely you have a third priority d the future of journalism oh yeah one of the most important as it puts dinner on the table for me (laughs) um yeah no it's been it's been again I feel like the past six months has completely flipped the media landscape and the way in which we consume news so I have been completely privileged to work on um one of the best magazines in the UK for the past nearly 10 years um And it's great. I trained as a magazine journalist. Absolutely love that sort of synergy between the words and the pictures, commissioning great stories um, and kind of speaking to the hearts and minds of our readers. You know, it's quite a a sort of intimate connection that you then get with them. But the problem, I suppose, or the challenge in recent months has been the future of print media. And I think it's been a long time coming. but it's about how we're sort of responding to the changing landscape and how digital and print can sit together more easily in the future. I think a lot of very old school journalists think that they're two completely separate mediums and they actually are, you know, writing for a digital audience is completely different to the way that you write a long form magazine profile piece. Um, But how how we can sort of cross-pollinate intelligently is something that we're, we're all still figuring out. But I, um, I think we've never needed news more. And um, there are lots of words out there, but we need better words, not more words. Mm, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Well, it's not my way. It's a great agency called Sonder Intel, which is founded by two former journalists um, who do these great sort of workshops and classes for brands, but also aspiring writers. And that's the sort of ethos behind it. I think everybody wants to be a content creator or is a self-appointed content creator. But what happens is that you get a lot of the same thing 
out there. So it's about, they work very carefully on kind of honing your voice or your brand's voice and yeah, making the words you put out there better. Um, I'm so impressed by them. Yeah, me too. And that's a great quote. Mm-hmm. I love sleep. Seriously, it's one of my biggest priorities and I'm a different and much improved person when I get my full eight hours. So I'm incredibly excited that this season of priorities is sponsored by Sleep Siren, an independent lifestyle brand fueled by a passion for health, wellness, and great sleep. Sleep Siren brings together science, education, and luxurious products to offer meaningful support to busy people who could sleep a little or a lot better. As the mother of a toddler and having suffered from insomnia on and off my entire life, I know firsthand how helpful Sleep Siren can be at identifying and covering your sleep needs. Whether you're looking to read an expert article on the latest sleep science, treat yourself to some insanely soft silk pajamas, or simply find a luxurious eye mask, Sleep Siren have everything you need to sleep well tonight. If you would like to improve your sleep, I'd love for you to have the same experience as me with Sleep Siren. So they're offering 20% off with the code PRIORITY20. Check them out on www.sleepsiren.com. Thank you to Sleep Siren. Nutrition is a priority for me, and I know that the more plants I eat, the better I feel. However, with a busy life, I, like you I'm sure, don't always manage to get my daily quota of greens. So I'm very happy that this season of priorities is sponsored by Foga, a new brand that makes plant shakes, pre-portioned blends of freeze-dried fruit and veg that you simply shake up with water or milk to create a restaurant standard smoothie at home. I'm not really into protein shakes or powders. However, these are genuinely amazing. They're so easy and delicious. Right now, I'm digging the ginger and greens combination, and my daughter is a big fan of berries and cinnamon. They contain zero extra sugars or chemicals, through freeze drying, have all the nutrients locked in, and they're whole plant, meaning they have all the fiber of fresh fruit and veg. It's really the lazy person's dream. If you are looking to easily and affordably prioritize your nourishment, then I'd love to find out if you enjoy Foga as much as I do. They're offering £5 off your first box with the code PRIORITIES. Check them out on www.foga.co. That's F-O-G-A. Thank you to Foga. I think, as you said, with journalism now, there is so much stuff out there and there is so much unedited work. Yeah, (laughs) like the world where blogs and like... My space, like seriously. <laughs> and I also think, I guess it's completely the same for foot or very similar for, for, for photographers who have really honed their craft, who have, you know, studied it for years, been, been to art school. And now, I mean, you get a good iPhone these days, you're sorted. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everyone's a photographer on Instagram and everyone's a, a writer on WordPress or Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's because again it goes back to that slightly like primal territorial thing of like I have come through this industry and I have done my time and I did my MA and you know I've worked here and worked there. Um but I think we're also living in a generation where we've never been more screwed over, particularly mine, with like the recession and the banking crisis, then we're going to be dealing with Brexit and we're going to be dealing with like the fallout 
from corona and the negative impact it's going to have on the jobs economy. Um, so I would never begrudge anyone something that helps them generate their income um, because that's ultimately what it goes back to, right? Like never do anything that will compromise your ability to put dinner on the table. Um, I also think there's so much to be learned from people that have that kind of very brave entrepreneurial spirit where perhaps mm. they have come from a traditional background, but they're doing it and they're owning it and doing so well with it. You know, I've always thought, particularly when I work at the magazine that I do, that there shouldn't really ever be a job that's beneath me from, you know, organizing a cover shoot with a Kardashian to helping somebody with the mail outs, you know, you will learn something from every aspect of working on a magazine and you should never stop. Um, and you shouldn't hold yourself back either. So it's really hard. Writing is a craft and you really do need to dedicate yourself to it. And you can tell the people that are incredibly successful and the people that I love reading the most have spent time kind of fine tuning it, but you know, it does take a lot of work. So if someone's just at the start of their journey, great. I'd love to see what happens in five years time. Mm. Um, the, 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 the market itself is incredibly saturated. I think that's the other problem. There are loads of brilliant journalists out there, but they don't necessarily have the platforms in which to put out their work. You hear of, you know, job cuts and losses throughout the industry, a magazine shutting down. Mm. And, and local papers. Yeah, it's really where so many of the big editors hone their craft. Or start, yeah. you know, started at local papers because that's where yeah. you, that's where you learn how to write. That's where you learn how to edit and all yeah. the other stuff, as you say, that yeah. goes along with it. Making tea, yeah, making tea. My God, the conversations that you overhear when you're making tea. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really sad, but I'm hoping that so many of these sort of traditional print media platforms find a way to become slightly more agile and pivot into interesting ways of publishing. Um, but I think it all remains to be seen. We, we we did not anticipate lockdown and corona happening. I think with that same spirit, we can't anticipate what's going to happen in the next six months. And we try to be as hopeful as possible. But I think there will always be an appetite for good writing. Well, not good, not just good writing. I think it's the core of, of my journalism, at least, is there will always be an appetite for good storytelling. So however you choose to tell that story in whatever format, if it's a good story, then people will pick it up. People will read it. People will consume it. Um, it's just, it's really hard. Mm. It's a really hard climate right now. I'm really curious by this about this because I've always worked in um, incredibly long lead magazines, generally biannuals that only come out twice a year even though I've contributed to others. I'm really curious, what's it like to work at a weekly magazine, week in, week out, for almost 10 years? The most fun ever. Honestly, I, I would not trade where I work right now for anything else because it, you know, it's got that perfect balance of having some of the more slightly strategic pieces or long lead pieces that you might have the month at the monthly glossies. Um, but you can also be really reactive to what's happening in the news and something could happen on a Thursday and it's the cover of the magazine the following Friday. Um, I think the thing that makes it so pleasurable is the team that works with you on it. Mm. So, you know, I think 
we're kind of coming through that era where there's the sort of the cult of the editor, the editor of the personality. And yes, it's kind of formed so many great people. But I think that time is over. And actually, it's much more about the creative teams, the editorial teams behind the overall product. And I've been lucky to work with three great editors of ES Magazine um, who've really tapped into that. Um, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's about being reactive, having the best of the glossy long lead stuff and being able to work with really cool creatives. Mm, that's what I miss from magazines working with my team yeah them around I, I mean I absolutely hated that part of working from home I suppose where I, I've realized I am an incredibly social creature and very energized by people um so to sort of be cut off from all of that working from a desk alone in your flat it can be a bit much at times and you really crave that water cooler chat or you know the conversation about someone's weekend that will spark a great feature idea um Mm. that comes from human interaction I think it remains to be seen whether or not we're all going to be going back into offices in the way that we used to but Mm. I think that's a very special thing about putting together a magazine isn't it Mm, I agree and toddlers are great company in one way but they don't they don't provide the water cooler chat. Yeah, toddlers that weren't toddlers when you went into lockdown, but certainly are toddlers now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. All right, let's come on to an area that's not a priority for you at all. Oh yeah. I said to me, which I love. I love your answer. <laughs> Conspicuous consumption. Yeah. It's like literally a term that I haven't used in my writing since perhaps. I did my dissertation. Um, <laughs> but it's this sort of idea that the way in which we consume product and things sort of cements our place in society and the more we consume, the higher we rise, etc. I'm sure that's not the actual definition. It's just the way that I'm interpreting it now. So whereas before... It was about having the most fabulous outfits and the most fabulous bags and cars and things, you know. We just had so many things. Um, I literally couldn't care less. I I couldn't care less about whether or not, you know, I'm wearing a dress that's in its third year of existence or carrying a bag that's actually a tote that I got free from a breastfeeding workshop versus, you know... (laughs) fabulous sample sale in Mayfair like that to me right now is not a priority I still think there is that it's really important to support businesses particularly local businesses um and that there is a place for for those kind of products every now and then but I think the rate at which we were consuming um was incredibly shocking and we were doing it without thinking Mm, Um, absolutely Purchasing for purchasing sake, almost. Yeah, and you know, it was really good example is when we kind of get dressed to go to work. We obviously aren't doing that as much now because we're working from home or virtually, and you know, that comes with a whole other way of sort of dressing for the office. But I definitely used to sometimes get the panic. It's almost like going to school where you'd have to like dress in a certain way. Panic about being presentable. And I think it's very important to be professional and presentable. 
and particularly in the industry in which I work, we're so lucky to hear the stories about incredible brands that are doing really innovative things. But for me personally, the way in which I spend my time and money, I no longer prioritize like things. It's much more about experiences or ways in which I can nourish my home life. Um, so delicious food on the table or, you know, a nice handful of flowers from the market. It all sounds very romantic again. But um, yeah, it's less about sort of status objects or, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're, they're for, again, from my parents, I perhaps it is like a very Indian thing. There were sort of markers, physical markers of success. And to them, it basically reflected security. So having the house, having the car, no longer having a mortgage, making sure that everyone was turned out really well for things that we attended. Um, and I'm not saying that they had to be flashy, but they were. there was that sort of relationship where they had tied financial and emotional well-being to an object. Whereas for me, like I spoke about earlier, it's much more about investing in your health, um, being able to travel, um, putting money into things that actually matter to me right now. It's a good one to not have as a priority. I think yeah. uh, I com- I completely agree with you, first of all. As you know, I'm quite big on conspicuous consumption I've also started to think more and more about fashion as fun again yeah I think for a long time in magazines you become very obsessed with looking chic or as you grow older as well maybe get into your mid-30s and you want to look a little bit chicer and Mm. more put together and I started to throw that a bit out the window Mm. at this point and dress for what makes me happy and I feel is fun rather than, or brings joy, if you're going to go really like Marie Kondo on it. <laughs> yeah, I am, um, I suppose when it's a newspaper supplement, it's a slightly different environment, but I do appreciate the sentiment. And I think you can put a tremendous amount of pressure on yourself, right? Because mm. very performative. If you dress for the job, you look like you can absolutely do the job. And there is something in that, absolutely. But mm. I just, I've reached a wall, you know, <laughs> it is old age. It's like I, I'm prioritizing comfort over like couture or, mm. you know, I've never been a person to be able to wear high heels. Never. I always wear sort of flats and trainers and like, I think I sp- maybe I'm just honing in on fashion too much. I do. I, but I do think there is, there was a tremendous emphasis before we had the kind of bigger conversation about sustainability and climate change, um, about new, 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 when actually there's something quite beautiful in looking after a piece through each season. Um, and actually there's a great, actually, there's a great woman that I used to work with called Hannah Rochelle. She used to be at the times and she worked with us at ES for a little while. And she has the most fabulous blog called On Brogue. And it's all about her beautiful shoes. But these are shoes that she's loved and cared for for so many years. And I thought that was such a like, clever way in for someone particularly who works within fashion. So appreciates that sort of throwaway culture and the kind of ceaseless cycle of seasons. Um, 
and she puts it together so so um so beautifully but really made me think about it in a sensible way that wasn't reactive so you kind of go from the one extreme where i need lots and lots and lots of new 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 things to i'm not going to buy anything at all for like two years there's a good balance um but yeah i suppose the other thing with the past few months is how throwaway we have been with ppe in particular and the sort of proliferation of single-use plastic perhaps because we've had to um so i think we need just as an extreme approach to tackling sustainability and waste as we have taken to safeguarding our health and wellness so yeah i think it's by less by better by local absolutely i'll include on brogue in the show notes today Mm. we have that it's interesting what you said about um essentially dressing for the job yeah Um, I'd never really thought about it before but I think for me as when I was doing all the shows so when I go to to Paris um twice a year to go to the shows I was also very young I was probably 10 years younger than most editors and so Mm. I really felt I had to dress like a grown-up yeah uh, compared to these women I mean 10 at a minimum some of them are now in their 50s and 60s yeah I hadn't really thought about it before. <laughs> Very funny. I um, I don't know if you ever watched it back in the day, but I um, you know how Netflix throws up these sort of very nostalgic shows. It threw up um, The Hills for me recently, and obviously I'm like, you know, you have those moments with all the streaming platforms where you're just waiting for the new releases. So you're like, fine, I'll take whatever you've got on a Saturday night. And I started rewatching The Hills, and I was completely addicted to this show. Like it like formed my opinion of what relationships should be like and what it's like to live in LA and it's so fabulous. I haven't seen this show. Oh okay all right well it's basically a reality tv show and it's um centered around these characters that live and work in LA and two of the girls are interns at Teen Vogue and um they sort of go in on their first day and an editor comes down to the fashion cupboard so for those of you that don't know fashion cupboard is the place where a lot of interns start on magazines and it's where all the lovely clothes go and they're responsible for taking care of the clothes and organizing them for shoots they come down and they take these two girls and they're like you know tweak the collar of a shirt put on a belt before they're allowed to go up and see the editor like can you imagine ever doing that to somebody that you work with whether they're an intern or an editor like in this day and age I'd be mortified my only responsibility for young people when I work with them is to make sure that they feel happy and supported like I couldn't care less if they had the right belt on or that their collar was just so but it was mad that it was so normal at that time and people didn't apologize for filming it it's like preserved forever I think Team Vogue's pretty different now Mm. Team Vogue does some really great journalism it does some great journalism and some great covers um I think what they put out there is pretty agenda setting but it was funny watching a show like that because it was like a time capsule. <laughs> yeah, some of those shows have not aged well. My God. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. An area that you would like to prove, improve on, make more of a priority for yourself, Dee? I said my friends and family ties, which sounds pretty basic. But I think what I've learned is that my energy can be like a hurricane sometimes and that's great because it definitely contributes towards my productivity um and output but what sometimes happens is that 
friends and family can get quite hurt by the speed of it. Um, I think it sometimes reads as quite insensitive or I definitely know that I could be better at listening, but there was an amazing book that someone was once talking to me about, about the different ways that you show love. You can be um, physically intimate. I mean, there are six ways that they talk about the ways that you show Mm, love. You can give gifts. You can, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I've realized that the way that I have historically always shown my love for my friends and family is through doing. So I'm actually not very good at listening or checking in with people. But, you know, in times of crisis or whenever there's like a big moment or things that are happening where they need like, a foot soldier, I will be their foot soldier and the most loyal foot soldier you will ever find. You know, I really pride myself on that. But there are gaps and things that I'm still learning. So I think I need to be able to, I might only be able to show my love through doing, but they need someone who shows their love through X, Y, and Z. So being a bit more intuitive and reading what they need on a singular level um, is something that I can definitely improve on. Because you never want to hurt your friends. No, you don't. First of all, I'm going to include that in the show notes, the list of, I think it's six, right, ways that you show love. I'll find that because I think it's a really interesting one. I'm glad you brought it up. I've had a few people talking about that recently, actually, Mm -hmm. and about how it's taught them a lot about how to interact with their... I haven't actually read the book myself, but somebody said that of those six things, your thing is definitely the doing, which sounds pretty accurate. I guess... As well, you talk about being a hurricane, and I know this firsthand. First of all, I think you're a really good friend, uh, and we're pretty good friends. But I, I also think, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think you also perhaps give yourself a bit of a hard time about things or put too much on yourself so that you always are striving to do better but sometimes don't appreciate the great things that you do do? Um. No, <laughs> I think you can always do more. It's not like that's too masochistic, but like I always feel like I can do more and I can do better. And even even if I've done a good job on something, I'll be like, yeah, but you know, could have gone that extra five percent. And I think that's fine when it's your kind of professional life. But I hate that feeling if I've ever fallen even one percent short in in my personal relationships. And I've really learned the hard, hard way because I've lost friends, you know, that I haven't been able to, to meet in that level or grown distant from friends because my way of showing love isn't compatible with the way that they need their love. Um, and that's really sad. I don't know if we should be changing ourselves fundamentally to keep friends. There needs to be a sort of kind of commingling of personalities for you to be mates in the first place but you know friendships are really rare fragile things and it's not something that I take for granted anymore um that they think you know some of your friendships can be like more powerful and nourishing and important in your life than like your actual relationships with your parents or family or siblings or whatever um so you have to try hard. You have to try as hard as you possibly can um, and not take it for granted because there's nothing more heartbreaking than losing somebody in your life when you could have helped rectify a situation or address it. Um, it's really hard because you have to like speak to your own prejudices and like intolerances um, 
And like one thing that's definitely emerged in the like recent months when I've been thinking about like how I can be a better friend or a better daughter or a better sister, you know, weird quirks of my personality. Like I'm a very jealous person. I didn't realize how jealous, but I can get incredibly jealous and I have to learn to like park that wave in a way where I can still be a good friend, a good daughter, a good sister and have it just sit there. I don't know. Yeah, I get very jealous too. It's a really strange emotion, jealousy, because it's so like inky. Like someone drops like a ball of ink in your chest and you can't ever undo it. But it's It's a very primal feeling as well, isn't it? Because it talks to our basic instinct of not wanting to be rejected from any any group at all. Yeah. Have anything taken away from us that might affect our security. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think that's one thing that I need to, I want to, not I need to, I want to improve on. Um, you also can't give 100%, 100% to everyone and everything all the time. Yeah, I mean. It's impossible. It is exhausting. Whilst also having a priority of your health, by the way. Yeah. Is that actually a contradiction? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I guess it's finding where because of course friendships and family and relationships are such an important part of health of course with um, mental health and physical health and having those connections but making sure that at the same time you're not making yourself feel guilty when you do perhaps drop a ball because at that point in life you can't keep them all you can't put all of your energy into everything So some things have to be, maybe have a little bit less attention to them at that given point. Yeah. And then you can turn it up. Amol talks about this really well. Do you remember the Amol episode? He talks about the different burners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very articulate, man. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, the times that I've really dropped the ball in my life have been fairly catastrophic. So <laughs> I'm reluctant to be dropping any balls. Maybe not drop a ball, maybe like put a ball down for a moment or... <laughs> yeah, maybe conflate two balls. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how long we can go with this metaphor. Um, let it go, just let it go. Maybe. I just, yeah, I think that it's it's like balancing the two, the two out for sure. I just know that as an adult... I value friendships so much more than perhaps I did previously Um, and want to show them the kind of respect and attention that I would my professional life or the way that I approach things with my child, my husband, you know, so. I think also if you found this as well, when you have a child, before you have children, you your friends get a lot more airtime naturally because you're out more and you're with them and so the need to put loads of energy there doesn't feel the same because it's it naturally goes there whereby when you've got a family to take care of and a job a lot Mm. of your energy goes into those two places and so you have to think about your friendships a lot more I know that for me I've definitely thought about some of my friendships and I want to put more and more energy into them than I have been the last few years because I took a bit of a break because I had a baby and that's what happens often or can happen, especially in London, which is so big. So to go and see your friend is like an hour and a half. 
Yeah, it can be a mission. You actually hit on a really good point. I remember talking to the brilliant podcaster Emma Gannon about this once upon a time. Um, and it was quite soon after I'd had my child. And I think there's the expectation also once you've had a child that it can um, be an excuse for a lot of behaviours and up to an extent it can. You're exhausted. There's a lot of like physical demands on you um, and emotional kind of imbalance. But the one thing I never thought about were were friends that were um, either struggling to conceive Mm. or um, had chosen not to have children at that stage in their life um, or were kind of ambivalent about the whole thing. And I felt like one thing that we'd always taken for granted was that our children can come everywhere with us, not physically, but, you know, that they always had a presence when, whenever we meet people, oh, I'm so sorry I was late, you know, bath and bedtime took X amount longer, or, oh my God, I had the most terrible night because she didn't sleep or whatever. And it's really hard to engage with them on just the friend level because mm. it comes so much of your experience. But I do think it's really important to try and meet them at that friend level because it's um it's just not fair it's not their decision that I decided to have a child you know that was fully mine and my partner's decision so I don't want to impose that on them and it's the same thing that I've sort of done with social media where I remember I had a missed miscarriage um before I had Mila and I found it very very hard to talk about it because it was it was, I, you know, the first time I'd ever become pregnant. And also it happened at a time where professionally I was riding on an absolute high. So when this very devastating thing happens to you privately, you kind of want to keep it as private as possible. But I remember on social media finding it incredibly hard to see either people talking about their own experiences or, you know, these kind of picture perfect families. So I always said, if I ever did have a child, I'd kind of minimize that exposure and it's I don't know if it's like a sort of inbuilt bit of trauma but I have tried to do that where I separate my life as a mother and everything that's going on at home with my persona on social media my professional life but also with the friends that might not necessarily be in that place right now um because it's hard it's really really hard and I just don't think it's fair I agree. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's with anything, right? Because with social media, what whatever you've been through or whatever you're going through, if it's difficult, it always seems like it's being thrown in your face as well. Yeah. Because there just always is that opportunity to look into everyone else's lives. Yeah. And it goes back to this weird, like new aspect of my personality, which I've finally decided to like recognize and let exist which is incredibly jealous like do you know the difference between jealousy and envy no tell me so jealousy is where you don't want something taken away from you so for Mm -hmm. example you don't want your friend hanging out with your other new friend because you get jealous okay they'll form a better friendship and then envy is wanting what someone else has so you look at someone who's succeeding on social media or has something that you want and you're envious of it you want it for yourself I didn't ever know that distinction I think I experienced both horrible beasts 
And social media is very good for both horrible beasts. And it can be quite useful because it shows a bit of a roadmap to what you want. Can be if you if you can harness it to and think about it in terms of, okay, well, this is something's coming up for me here. Something's showing me that I'm dissatisfied in some area and it may not be directly related to whatever I'm envious about, but perhaps there's something there that I need to look at. I think that's definitely the the Lily Silverton <laughs> reading of it. <laughs> Mine would be much more angry. Or, you know, using jealousy as the fuel to achieve even more. That's the, I suppose, the what like the, that's the one positive. Like I, I should try harder. I can try harder. I will try harder. Um, sometimes you just need to switch it off, though, don't you? Like it becomes a bit too much. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm planning a social media break for a month in September, which I'm already quite looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> right, my love. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for having me. This is Thank amazing. You so much, Dee. Mm-hmm. Total pleasure. I hope to speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review, as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month, I offer one free 60 minute online coaching session to a listener. All you have to do is hit subscribe rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to prioritiespodcast at gmail.com. You'll then be added into the ballot for a free one-to-one coaching session with me in which we will help align the priorities of your life. Thank you so much for listening and take care.